Hello and welcome to the Design Business Podcast. I'm Alexander Barnes-Ross and in this episode I'll be speaking to Rosie Haslam. Having recently started in her new role at StreetSense, Rosie is spearheading the company's UK expansion and in our conversation you'll hear her talk about the ever-evolving challenges of place, the finality of design and the social theory of space. This episode is sponsored by Backman, who design premium digital solutions for workplace furniture. With people starting to return to the office, they've recently launched a next generation office campaign, which looks at how to use tech to make the post-COVID transition just a little easier. Do check them out after you've listened to the show. And of course, thanks to them for supporting us and making this possible. Hello, Rosie Haslam. How are you? First hello, hello. Very well, thank you. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Um, I think, first of all, congratulations are in order with your new role at Street Sense. Thank you. Yeah, it's sort of, it's still fairly new. I'm about two months in. How are you, how are you settling in? Yeah, well, as well as you can, I guess, remotely, but um, that actually feels quite normal now, doesn't it? So I've yeah, had that been right at the start of the pandemic and I was starting something new remotely, I think that would have been a bit more challenging, but I'm, I'm quite used to working from home, working from wherever. And so it doesn't, I guess I'm not feeling that separation quite as much. Or having said that, you know, and, I, and it's something I guess I spoke about quite a lot or thought about quite a lot last year when I was working more in kind of workplace strategy is that idea of, you know, building communities or collaborating with colleagues when that you already know. And actually, when once those relationships are remote, you sort of already have that whole history and, you know, friendship or relationship, at least, to go on. Whereas, you know, building new relationships remotely is certainly not impossible. It's just it's just different. And actually, so far, so good. But I'm very much looking forward to, like, meeting all my new colleagues in person at some point soon. Absolutely. I've, I've gone through a similar thing. I think I've the I've got several clients that I've started working with over the pandemic and still do now but have never met in person it's the strangest thing I had a meeting I think it was last week or the week before um with one of my clients in Clerkenwell which in itself was a weird thing the idea of going to an actual in-person meeting but um we've talked for several months and the first thing um he said to me was I feel like we've met before but we haven't (laughs) Because it's just always been this over camera situation. And it was just this really weird situation of being in the same room as someone that you know fairly well, because you've been working with for a long time, but have never actually met in person. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, there's a real, I think I definitely found that you can build some great relationships. And But I I suppose it's the actual working collaboration. Well, I mean, yeah, we'll, we'll see, won't we, over time. But I think it's definitely well obviously been hugely advantageous to have zoom and all all the other tools but and I think they've worked better than we could have anticipated so absolutely and and going forward of course the choice will be you know which which relationships which connections which meetings in particular which interactions do we choose to still do on zoom and then when is there just the real value add of, of doing things in person and and I don't think any of us have the answer yet I think it will just be a let's try it out let's see for sure my uh, my conversation with um stephanie miller at hak a couple of weeks ago in the podcast yeah. she was saying about how um, a lot of their meetings now they'll sit down at the beginning of their project and decide what meetings absolutely have to happen in person and which meetings can happen on zoom um you know which ones you don't need to travel for and it's great to cut emissions but also just 
thinking about the way we have our meetings is something that's now just a part of their natural process, which is nice to see, because I don't think that's something that was normal before the pandemic, right? There was never a point at which you sit down and think, do we actually have to do this meeting in a meeting room or can we do it over Zoom or work from home? I think the whole way we think about working has changed, hasn't it? Yeah, completely. And I think it, but, but I think the, the key thing there is that you know, before everything was just a default, there wasn't really much thinking involved. There wasn't much choice. You just did those things. I, yeah. And I listened to, I listened to that um, episode. It was great. But the, I think there's that idea of, yes, let's really schedule those meetings because those are really key touch points. But definitely, I think the thing that is missing is just that being in space like being in in the workplace with your colleagues not for a meeting but just the kind of overhearing what's happening just being a part of it and and I think that's the one thing that you know I am lacking by not being sort of co-present with all of all of my new colleagues the things you pick up when you don't even realize you're picking them up both from a like work-related perspective overhearing what things that people are working on but you know it sounds really cliche but you know the water cooler moments and I don't just mean those sparks of interaction it's it's seeing how people interact here overhearing what they did at the weekend you know you're getting so many insights about a person by understanding you know what they're up to what are they into all of those things so I think you know that's it's a really interesting model to to really plan out those meetings but I think there also needs to be some space just for you know just being together whether you're formally meeting or not but you're just there in the space there'll be some conversations which are work related and some which aren't yeah, definitely. I think I'm really looking forward to finding out a bit more about your new role and your company and and all of that. I think, should we start maybe by looking at you first and finding out about your journey? Because I know we've spoken before about how your journey and how you've ended up where you are. And I think just for listeners, it might be interesting to hear how you've got to working at Street sure. Sense and your yeah, time space yeah. because you didn't train as a designer, did you? No. And this... Um... I never know if it's sort of a chip on my shoulder or it's no I proudly own it I proudly own my my past um and it's it for me it feels all very logical and actually this final step you know the most recent step street sense does feel like you know the most logical next step but I suppose in having worked in the design world for a very long time I've maybe um had a slightly different pathway than many others so I always knew that I was really fascinated by place and, and space, cities, buildings, but also about people. So when I was choosing my undergrad, um, back when you were ever 17, you know, I was really tossing up between architecture um, and geography. And ultimately I chose geography, which many people don't <laughs> really know what geography is, but to me it was about, you know, um, people and space and how the two interact and creating, you know, how do you create great places for people and that, so that seed was sown sort of very early because I think for me, whilst again, I loved architecture and cities, it wasn't so much about what do they look like? You know, how do they stand up? It was, how do they actually work? And so for me, what I really wanted to do was carry on studying all of those principles of people and place. And so, you know, for me, geography was urban theory. It was social theory. It was psychology. It was politics. It was economics, which gave me a really great sort of underpinning for actually everything that I subsequently went to do so that was that's where I sort of started academically and then um of course you come out with a degree that sounds actually fairly generic on the surface um and so then I wanted to actually focus it in on okay right now I want to apply all of these all of this thinking to something that's more concrete and excuse the pun actually um, but <laughs> thinking then about building, 
never used that one before. Um, I didn't even notice. (laughs) About, you know, buildings and cities. And so I ended up actually doing a master's at the Bartlett UCL, um, which was in uh, quite a a niche sort of theory, which is called space syntax. And, And really it's a very social theory of space. So understanding how spaces are created by people, but also for people and how you create great space that really works. Um, but it's also got a kind of a quantitative side, which is very much about being able to model those theories in order to predict and and understand how cities actually do work. So to me, that kind of art and science together was like really compelling. And so that's what I then studied um, as a master's with a view to then channel that directly into a role. And it did. And so I started working for um, the company and urban design consultancy that had sort of spun out of UCL, so called Space and Tax Limited. And again, it was really applying these ideas about how do you look at existing spaces and understand how they are connected, how different you know, pathways, <clears throat> excuse me, through a city work, how it's connected into the wider city. And can you use that understanding to inform optimization? Like how could you redesign or improve an area by, by really looking at where people would move through it? So they also did some work on, on the building scale, but it was predominantly on city scale. I then also did an urban design masters, which added a bit more, sort of more of the design side of things, but also I suppose, a bigger understanding of how the whole works, you know, so not just the layout, but also thinking about how a whole development might work. So that was all fascinating and, you know, really pushed my career off in a very urbanism um, related direction. Very big, very big picture almost. Yeah, I mean, we did work across projects of all scales, but but actually yeah, the main project I was working on was a huge, it's talk about big picture, huge picture. Um, I worked on a huge project in Jeddah for many years, um, wow. which was looking at, I mean, sort of the scale of some kind of small settlements, but then really the scale of Jeddah within Saudi Arabia and how it connected to other cities. So a lot of, yeah, big scale urban thinking, which was fascinating. But I think then what I felt was slightly lacking was, actually like the people element so at the scale of some some of the projects I was working on again that huge scale we were just designing or thinking about people on mass like on serious mass and I think what I really missed was the understanding of the designing for people and and what were the you know the individual people motivations or desires from a space so actually then an opportunity arose at Space Lab which is a um, smaller architecture practice, design practice, but with a very much a de- um, data-driven design, people-focused but data-driven approach and ethos. So interestingly, they'd actually also had this academic partnership with UCL, so they're very much affiliated with the same course that I'd done. <clears throat> so a lot of those same principles, but applying it on a, a building scale. Um, and so there really gave me the opportunity to use the same approach, but work much more closely with end clients, predominantly on workplace projects. So I ran the kind of consultancy and as we evolved it over time to strategy, research and strategy team, which was all about working with businesses and understanding what their vision was for the future of a business. There's that whole element of kind of business, brand, culture, and then understanding all of their people, what they wanted, what they needed, and helping I guess, shape a space, wrap a space around a business strategy and create a space that really worked for the people. So very different scale, but really allowed me to work closely with people. And so again, those dimensions of people and and place were really brought to the fore. So, and also then 
what I loved was the the work as a strategy team with the design team. So you know, working closely with designers to bring a strategy to life as well. So that was a that was fantastic, and I think really you know solved the the other side of of my passion for kind of place, but also ticking the people boxes. So so that was amazing, and that was you know seven years there as director, and had a great adventure. And you know as the, the business grew and evolved, and then of course last year came um, with the pandemic, and it, you know so that you know our world was was workplace workplace strategy. Um, so last year threw up a whole new set of challenges, which was you know you know fascinating to be working in that field like I say challenging very challenging um at times scary but actually almost the most interesting that it could ever be you know all of a lot of the principles that we'd always advocated you know were, were actually coming to the fore but at the same time matched with lots of other challenges and so yeah I spent lots of last year talking about thinking about you know the future of work the present of work as it was last year and then now you know looking to the future and what does that mean for how we're all going to work going forward so yeah really <laughs> quite an interesting time to be alive and working in that field as, as I know you know from from all your experience in the kind of the world of the workplace absolutely I think it's it is such an it has been such an interesting year for everyone and um, particularly within workplace and I was going to ask about whether any of your clients that you worked with at Space Lab for example when you design a space, when you think about that strategy and how people use the space, you know, mm. agile working and flexibility are really, really important things and, and have been for a long time, if not always. Um, but it's not like you design a space with a pandemic in mind, um, you know, when that's not something that we think about. Have you, did you find any of your clients or spaces that were designed at Space Lab previously, um, even though they weren't designed with the idea of social distancing and hybrid working in, in mind, actually they they worked really well for that and they adapted quite well how was that journey in terms of your existing clients yeah I mean interesting question I think there's so many phases of the pandemic and and the first one really was just obviously not being in the physical workplace everyone was working from home and so I think the clients that we'd already taken on the journey to move to a much more agile way of working it was much more seamless anyway And, and like us at Space Lab you know we were already very agile as a business I guess in both senses, one, you know, we kind of, we were always quite open to change, but also in terms of the way we physically worked, you know, we all had laptops already. Um, everybody was always working on the move, you know, as, as architects and designers, lots of the time you're either out at clients, or you're on site. So people were already quite agile in that sense. And so the same for clients and businesses who already had that mentality of, you know, if you're know, at, at at most simple, you know, not having their own fixed desk that they went to every day meant that change wasn't such a, you know, so kind of, I don't know, groundbreaking. Of course, the 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 main side of it though, because the other side of things that we'd always advocated for was really, you know, the, the people-driven side of it, being together, collaborating. And so that was a challenge that we faced as a business, as many other design businesses did, but all, all businesses, you know, and a little bit like we, we said at the start of this, you know, there's there's collaboration that can be done and amazingly has been done brilliantly through Zoom or any other tools, but the kind of being together in space, that's what what we were all lacking. So I think for, the, for that main period of working from home, I think businesses you know, all adapted, whether they had 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 a past of agility or not, 
everyone had subsequently learned. But I think then it's the idea of that as people go back to, to the businesses, you know, as you say, the business that we'd already worked with and had already set them up to work differently. Again, the transition back hasn't and you know it's kind of an ongoing isn't it and won't be as challenging because people don't expect to come back to their own fixed desk and so I think that you know we've all learned this last year so I think everyone actually regardless of what they've done before is is going to be working differently and and doesn't won't need the same things when they do go back um but I think you know that's the fascinating journey to come really yeah I think it's it's interesting to look at the kind of push-pull factors when it comes to flexibility and, and agile working because there are some elements of designing a space um, and creating places that work for people and how they want to work and how is best for their lives but there's also an element of of trying to promote that change within people so that it works better for them without them knowing I mean there's this the age-old talking about um, discussion about hot desking and how you know there's those typical older kind of really people that's really set in their ways oh I want my desk in my corner office and all of this and you know you're kind of promoting that change and once they've made the leap they realize actually this is for the best but it's interesting to see those as i said push-pull factors of of design promoting change and design changing to support how people are naturally right sure because i think that's you know and we used to always say when we were trying to advocate for these new ways of working it wasn't you know we weren't there to make people's lives harder i you know ultimately the aim was that it would make people be able to work better and and it would work for the individuals as well as the whole business but at the same time we're also designing for diversity like different people want and need different things so it's not about taking away it was about here because you know, for some people the old model might have worked very well and so even within an agile setup many people would still go back to the same single desk or number of desks they'd have their preferences which for some people they wanted something completely different which the old model of a fixed desk with the same next to the same people in the same place every day didn't actually work so Again, it's that idea of like the default isn't necessarily the right thing. And but at the same time, don't, you know, don't throw out everything because it doesn't because some of it did work. So, yeah, I think, again, diversity and giving people options and that, I suppose, will become even more important going forward. How is that impacting you in your new role should we talk a bit about that and what you're doing now and where you're working give us a little overview of of street sense and rosie haslam at street sense okay oh that's a a big (laughs) question um yeah so i suppose you know i think as i said earlier it feels to me like a very logical next step and particularly after you know the experiences of last year where as i say my work was really focusing on you know what's the future of work and what does that mean where are we going to where and how are we going to work going forward but necessarily i think that takes it takes you know it requires you to actually zoom out much further you know it's not just about where you work it, that's almost the platform or the springboard from which to say oh hang on a sec if i'm not if i'm making choices about where and how i work what does that mean for my wider life? And I think it is much more that we need to be asking questions. Okay, well, how are people going to live going forward? Where, where, and how do they want to live? So, of course, necessarily that leads to questions about our homes. What do our homes need to be and do for us, given that we may be working from them? You know, and again, this past year we've all made do, but going forward, as people start making bigger life choices, you know, do they want to still live in the same place? Do they want the same type of home? If if they're making different choices about how and where they work. There's also, you know, questions about how we use other, you know, public spaces. 
other you know retail how are we going to shop going forward how are we going you know how do we socialize where do we socialize so there's much bigger questions of like our bigger places were definitely you know that's where I was sort of starting to go and and be far more or, or, or in increasingly interested in the much bigger picture and some of that stuff I started working on at Space Lab so across the kind of collective of businesses within Space Lab to working a little bit more with the urban development um, wing and the you know the research wings and and, and starting to set up actually a, a, a new research studio at, at Space Lab called Lab Thinks um, which again was much more about joining the dots between these different scales of work and um, I guess applying this idea of research driven but people focused strategy um two different scales but but then what happened is this opportunity arose for me to actually very materially move into that much bigger realm and that's that's with street sense so street sense um is an american-based company it's been going about 20 years quite multidisciplinary now but was always been grounded in very much you know, a strategic look at creating places and then subsequently brands as well that kind of bring those places to life so lots of different strands of work in the states um, as I say strategy design branding marketing um, but the opportunity really arose when they wanted to come and launch in the UK so I came on board two months ago to launch the UK venture, which is very exciting um, and it's been a bit of a roller coaster over two months but it's really about it's been about looking at the business and how you know which parts of it do we best launch here and how are we bringing it to the UK market and which are the key things that you know what is the most timely thing to be to be thinking about and I think so for me what was very compelling was a the opportunity to help create something new here um but also shape it in line with what I see as the huge opportunity at the moment which is you know a very strategic look at our places and what we all want and need going forward I mean given the pandemic but also you know just given you know the, the the new the new and ever evolving challenges of place so I mean the main thing for me I suppose is you know what is place and that comes back to as I say ties together all the threads of my sort of career and and just personal interests is you know I think space and place often get confounded you know lots of our chat in our industry or the wider kind of real estate industry people use them interchangeably space and place space is obviously an amazing thing and has its own very formal properties but space is that I think it's a it's quite a measurable tangible entity whereas place is really what happens once people come and use a space bring it to life add meaning have connections both with the, with the place itself but also with each other within within space so you know place is really our our main I suppose driver that's our focus and and then it's about understanding okay well how does place work for people and and this is then where I think the the key part of the role and, and the approach is about understanding those people you know people are what makes place we we can create the conditions for them to bring it to life but you know you really need to understand your people so the kind of research insight driven approach that I've always had in my various roles is again really leveraged here so understanding those complexities of of different people multiple people that will be using a place you're not creating a place that is kind of all things to all people but understanding who are the actual people that will be using it and you know different people using it for different things but overlapping at key moments and, and you get this real complexity of you know it's like places like an, you know you need a holistic look because it is an interrelated ecosystem different people 
doing different things, but also physically coming together. And it's those overlaps that are fascinating. You know, um, it always makes me think of Jane Jacobs' sort of classic text on urbanism. You know, she talks about the ballet of the sidewalk and this idea of like choreographing that. And there's there's definitely a sort of creativity and freedom to it, but there is also you know, there are certain ingredients to, to get that right and to make sure it's kind of a functioning place by understanding those different people. So yeah, fascinating work on place, um, people, and I suppose being in this industry, the real estate industry, you know, it's, it's also challenging that idea of value. Like if we think about space in the very quantifiable form, then that has very, or I suppose expectations are very quantifiable measurement of space, both in square footage, but then the value that it generates from income producing type functions and amenities. Whereas actually by shifting the lens to place, it's like, okay, well, what actually goes on in that square footage? And that's where the value is. Because, you know, if you can, if you can create a great place that people love, and that's through, you know, through understanding how, how they develop emotional connection, how they come to really love a place you know so that's the public realm the programming the activation the brand all of those things the very experiential dimensions those actually you know experience generating value in turn will potentially you know, will drive just human social value but ultimately that you know the income generating amenities are not going to generate any income if you don't have the people there so really again challenging this idea of value in place um and creating great place for people and in turn that becomes a sustainable future-proof place itself in terms of when you when you talk about turning a space into a place and all of that research that goes into that is there an there must be surely an element of unpredictability and, and kind of guesswork there because as much research as you can do into people and the way they work and what they might need and you work with designers and you create this space that should work there must be an element somewhere of kind of actually you have to monitor and see how people use the space after it's been designed and presented and see if maybe you need to adapt it afterwards or whether it's being used in the way that you designed it to right yeah completely completely and actually you know I think the first the first side of that is that the kind of that art and the science you know it's not a precise science there are key you know there might be there might you know there might be a formula but it's not formulaic you know this idea of experience you know if if anyone working in this field you know the more you generate experience and knowledge and you know understanding how different places work you, you get a sense of how you put the right things together but there's also the art is partly you know the creativity of a designer or a strategist or whatever just being able to to allow for those things but I think the key next bit is as you say actually not over engineering it and and that can start Part of that can be more um, conscious, you know, actually, again, by really understanding people, you know, watch them, observe them. How, how do people move through space? You know, it's that, um, you know, there's work done in, in New York, you know, many years ago by um, William White, which was all about just observing places, you know, sitting back in a, you know, the public square, looking where people move, like what are the paths that they track you know I always think actually tell you what I love do you love do you ever see you know in parks you see the kind of the trampled path across yes. grass that is yes. in a completely different direction than the concrete you know path that was laid you know, and they're called desire lines and I'm so fascinated by 
you know, that's where people actually want to move. You know, so if you if you kind of hold off, don't design the full place and do, give it some room to to be lived in and see how people move through it and where people want and, and then you know then build the path because because then you're seeing what people actually want from the place. I always find it hilarious when you look at a really nice park that's been redesigned and there's these kind of set pathways and it looks really lovely and then there's a great big stonking mud path that goes yeah. right across the whole thing and you look at it and go I mean it looks nice but this has not been designed well because it's not been it's designed to look good rather than function for how people use it and okay. people aren't going to walk in a zigzag if they don't have to right <laughs> yeah exactly and, and and these are you know actually very much these are principles of you know space syntax theory you know the the my kind of early underpinning my masters but really again just thinking about where do people move and there's various you know ideas about sight lines and about the shortest distance but ultimately and again so some of these things are principles that designers might have in mind but again you, you can't always plan for exactly what people are going to do so i think it's a really interesting question in general about the kind of finality of design and 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 even just that process of sort of coming in um designing something and thinking that that's static you know places are never going to be static and so there's always huge value i think in actually designing in some space sorry to to, to complete the word give, i guess giving room to breathe giving the place time and opportunity to evolve with what people actually want and, and some of that might be you know, and, and necessarily lots of schemes are actually phased because, you know, the reality of not being able to build or having the finances to build everything all at once. But I think what, what that allows or else, you know, prompts and should prompt is that actually things are measured as you go. So you learn from the bits that have been developed and potentially iterate or, or tweak what comes next in line with what you've learned. Um, and so that's at one sort of temporal scale. I also think there's just, you know, I, I really think, you know, this, this idea of like meanwhile spaces, those are kind of they're active, they're they're often places that are activated, you know, whilst the bigger development is going on. But actually, I think there's something to be said for having areas that are, that are permanent meanwhile. You're keeping giving opportunities to trial new things. And you know, actually, there's a term that lots of people have been using in the past year of this sort of perpetual beta. You know, we're always going to keep learning, and certainly post-pandemic, we will be. You know, and and we need to give space for that. But it's also about you know bringing new things in and giving new opportunities to trial new things, and but then also encouraging them to then move on and find a new space place to go and do that or or trial that and inject and also injecting that kind of new activity. I think is interesting. Do you um, think people off the back of the pandemic ha are now much more willing to accept change particularly within the UK we are quite a small c conservative um kind of group of people in comparison to many other countries and a lot of the typical British outlook is we don't like change and you know it's very much oh but this is the way it's always been done you know do you think that the pandemic has, has changed that slightly and, and made people more open to change and, and and things not being the way they always have been yeah, I guess um, I hadn't really thought of it in that context. Yeah, I guess so, but but probably also embrace it. They probably had quite ex well. I I would hope many people have had quite positive experiences of change, and and maybe went into all of this. They obviously, had the pandemic obviously brought huge challenges and sadness for many. So I don't want to lessen that idea, 
but I think you know what really shook us to the core at the beginning was just the huge scale of change but actually I think as people settled into it and found new rhythms they probably realized that some change can be good and I think it is a real moment where people are therefore making bigger decisions about okay, having gone through this change, which parts of the change do I want to keep? And, and so it, it is this much bigger question. And I think it's it's very black and white to, to just say, oh, everything will go back to normal, but also to say, oh, everything has changed fundamentally. I mean, you know, that kind of the now fairly overused term of, you know, the pandemic being an accelerator of all that came before. I think it is true. You know, lots of the trends we're seeing about you know people starting to rethink where they work starting to consider okay do i still want to live in the center of a town do i still you know all of these things about the different scales of the different places they use where they live how they live their lives you know, those questions were happening before but what we what the pandemic has done it has made us all collectively you know everybody in the nation the world rethink those things at such a scale that actually, you know, the kind of momentum and the mass of people then putting their hands up and saying, actually, I do want to make a change. I think that's what we then can't deny. Whereas before you may have had, you know, the odd person making those decisions or having those thoughts. Now, like, you know, the, the floodgates are open, people are making those decisions. So I think then what that means, and this is, this is I see this as a wholly good thing, that actually as placemakers, as designers, as architects, we actually have to work much harder. You know, the, things aren't, again, to use a, use a phrase we used earlier about the, the default. You know, people won't just make do with the default. People have become much more active, um, choice-led. I mean, consumers to, you know, essentially everything that we consume, we're making active choices about. So for us as people who are creating those places, we've got to make sure they're really, really good because otherwise people just won't come. And again, that's from the scale of, you know, the place that you choose to get your coffee, the place, the neighbourhood you choose to live in, the place you choose to work, you know, the, the town you choose to live in. Do you still live in a town or do you move out to the countryside? So if those places aren't good enough and compelling enough for the individual, then people aren't going to choose them. And so people will very much vote with their feet. And so I think change can be really positive and it's, and it's I th hopefully will only result in better places because we need them to be. I've also noticed it's given people um, a newfound confidence in a way as well of kind of recognizing and accepting and and saying this is this is me this is what I want this is what works for me and this is what doesn't I think I saw this um, post on LinkedIn from one of Amazon's vice president Sandy Carter yesterday where she screenshotted her um, email signature and at the bottom of her signature she put this note that I'll just read it quickly it says getting this email out of normal working hours question mark we work at a digital, digitally enabled relentless pace, which can disrupt our ability to sleep enough, eat right, exercise, and spend time with people that matter most. I'm sending you this email at a time that works for me. I only expect you to respond to it when it's convenient for you. And I thought that was such a nice little disclaimer to have at the bottom of an email within the work context, because it's so it's so easy to fall into that trap working remotely and working particularly with a global company um you know with different time zones and all that sort of thing it must be really easy to fall into the trap of oh i know it's 8 p.m but i'll just check my emails or whatever and i think this confidence piece is is really important because people need to be able to say no this doesn't work for me i'm going to work this time or i'm going to reply to my emails between this hour and this hour and i'm not going to respond between that 
I put a post myself on LinkedIn the other day about how I'm quite a, a, I'm more of a, a late person than an early person. And I might reply to emails at one, two in the morning, but that's because that's just where my brain is most active. And that's what works for me. That doesn't mean I expect you to reply to me at one, two in the morning. Um, and I think it's just interesting to see that the, the change in, in confidence um, that this has given people. Yeah. And, and the way that businesses have had to adjust and, and accommodate their people and the diversity of people and you know I think there's the flexibility that we've all had to show each other when we've you know had these conflicting responsibilities you know for those who had kids through this or other caring responsibilities so their day necessarily had to take a different shape because it might have a moment in the middle of it where they had to go and do a school run and I think those things have been those things existed before right I mean obviously things like homeschooling had a whole different you know shift of, of time responsibilities but I think everyone's become a lot more human and understanding of each other. Um, and then what that's empowered people to do is say, well, actually, this is what works best for me. I think the next step, and this is what we're going to kind of work out as, as people start returning more to the workplace or not, is that, you know, the kind of hybridity and how, and thinking beyond the individual. I think it's fantastic that people are finding their own swing and what works best for them. It's then fitting that, you know, scaling that up almost, okay, well, how does this work for my team? It does this work for my team. This is my preference. That's their preference. How do we meet in the middle so that we can work together? And then how does this work for the business? So again, businesses definitely need to empower their staff even more and, and, and trust and respect the individuals, but things ultimately still do need to work for the business. So I think it's just that, um, and that's what all the next step is going to be about, right? Is, 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 is working out what works for the individual, what works out for, for wider the wider community so both in the scale of a of a workplace and a business but also you know our, our wider places you know how do we all co-live and coexist together when we've got very new and different patterns of living so with your new role at street sense we haven't talked about exactly what you do day to day so what does a day in the life of rosie haslam look like at the moment in your new role what do you what do you do because you work with an american company right so are you working on us hours within the uk time zone or how does that look for you yeah good good question um speaking of you know being empowered to, to choose um <laughs> no i think everyone's being actually very respectful so the majority of my, my colleagues are in dc and that's five hours behind um but actually in some ways what it means is that i get my mornings to focus on uk stuff and interacting with uk people and clients and um sort of partners and have a little bit of time to sort of focus and do the work as it were but then as of about 12 1 depending how early birds each of my colleagues are you know as they start waking up my afternoons are often much more meeting heavy with with the US but so again being you know two months in that's been quite a good balance because a lot of the contact time has been you know really developing you know get first of all getting to know the team getting to know the business but also developing what the offer is here and then my mornings again are sort of starting to put that into practice so so I think it's probably more of a shift now as we've we've sort of honed in on on exactly what our offer is now my mornings are much more about meeting UK you know clients and um discussing potential projects here largely I'm still from home but it's been really nice to start actually going out and meeting people in person you know I had a site visit yesterday it was you know beautiful sunny days to be going out um those have been a bit too rare anyway <laughs> the sunny days but um you know really 
you know, being able to go out and visit a place as it comes alive, you know, post or as we emerge from some phase of the pandemic and, and seeing place, you know, brought to life has been fantastic. Um, but yeah, but also in terms of the day to day, you know, it's about really driving this new, you know, the new direction for the UK business, which is place strategy. It's taking a really strategic sort of partnership approach um, for developers, for building owners, for councils, even for architects, you know, who, who are working on schemes, but really want to bring a very strategic look. So really, you know, make sure that the development is, is going to work. And that's really by helping them set a very robust sort of vision at the beginning. A lot of that is driven by insights about research. But as we said earlier, it's that kind of art and science. Um, and then shaping that vision and then building a strategy around it. So that kind of very essential, ideally very early on in a project, really creating a North Star that, you know, that the whole project can be linked around. And that then can translate into implementation. And that's, again, either driven sort of from internally, you know, our internal teams who can then manifest that in design, in, in branding, in marketing, um, but also partnering with other architects and designers who, who can also deliver on that. So it's really interesting to start being part of a wider team, but again, being a really trusted partner of a client to get the strategy right. You know, I think it's, you know, place is, as I said, it's, it's complex. It doesn't need to be complicated, but it is complex and it needs a very strategic outlook, particularly at this very critical moment where we're all rethinking what place is as we emerge from the pandemic. So looking kind of looking bigger picture, you are spearheading this huge UK growth for Street Sense, right? Are you you're the first UK based person, right? Or, yes. Yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. So StreetSense have some presence um, in Europe. So we've got um, a team that's already been grown in Europe for the past couple of years in Madrid, which has more of a kind of hospitality focus just through the nature of you know, the type of work in Madrid, lots of tourism, lots of hospitality. But yes, I am number one in the UK, um, which is a very exciting challenge. Um, but with a view to, again, really grow the team, but grow it again, you know, to use the term strategically, we're really understanding what are the key bits that we want to um, run from here and how do we interact with, you know, the US colleagues that we have who, which bits will they deliver? I mean, I think what's really clear is having really rich knowledge of the UK market and culture is is critical. So the team will grow with, with that in mind, but, you know, leveraging some of the amazing skills and experience that we have in the US as well. So real thought leaders there um, who bring actually, you know, the global experience, which is which is the kind of the other side of the value. You know, there's there's obviously a real need to understand the UK context, but there's huge things to be learned from how things are done elsewhere as well. I wanted to turn it a little bit more personal actually about about yourself because I know that you've done a lot of um, thought leadership type stuff, CPDs and presentations and, and research while you're at Space Lab. I wanted to know what's next for you personally. Are you still interested in, in pushing that and becoming, you know, I've talked about influencers in the design world and you have quite a big presence online and, and most people in our industry know who you are because you've delivered great thought leadership content. Is that something that's important to you or is that something that's just happened as a result of your, your job? Oh, interesting. Um, I guess I'd not even really thought about it, which probably shows it's more it was kind of part of my job, but a bit that I was passionate about in the sense of 
you know, talking about these things with like having conversations and also, you know, where possible, helping people, teaching people. So I I don't necessarily see that changing. I suppose it will just be more with a slightly different focus and, and that kind of broader focus on on wider place. So no, I'd hope I'd hope that that can continue. I think the you know it's one thing to sort of sit on a webinar and and look at a blank screen and just sort of <laughs> project some thoughts into the world. But the ones I think that are much more interesting is when it does become part of a conversation and you know some of the stuff that I've even worked on with you um you know virtual interiors event. You know, when you can kind of engage audiences and actually develop a conversation and know that you're actually helping people that's amazing and also then learn yourself you know some of the panels have been part of it's great you you learn from the others and then also you build relationships and get to know new people so I think actually at a point where I'm slightly shifting into a slightly different world and, and different side of an industry that sort of thing is also really great for just growing a network so yeah open to <laughs> open to opportunities on that one there's your pitch yeah, if anyone wants to hire Rosie <laughs> for a, a, a panel discussion or yeah <laughs> no but more seriously just that also yeah. just really open to conversations I think mm. um you know as I build this thing here it's also just really interesting to to hear from others about what you know what what's meaningful and what matters to them what, what do people want to know about and um what are people talking about you know there's loads of We've spoken quite a lot today about sort of, again, grounding things in the future of work, partly because that was my background, but partly because that is a big question. I mean, there's there's other conversations about, you know, the 15 minute city. That's that's kind of, you know, a big theme at the moment. But I think there's so much more to be said that actually goes beyond the sort of surface concept. Oh, great. okay, we're going to be living. We want to live with all of these amenities in close proximity. I don't think that really gets under the skin of, okay, what does that actually mean? How do we actually create it? What does that mean? Is there a network of 15 minute cities or 15 minute places? And, you know, what does that then mean for the centre of the city? You know, I think a big area to start rethinking and relooking at is what happens to the centre as things do start dispersing. You know, this idea of kind of the donut effect of, you know, what's left in the middle. And and some people could look at that and say, OK, we just left the old CBD, that's you know, central business district. That's not important anymore. No, but what an opportunity. You know, so I think it's what I'm interested in is is looking at everything that has happened and is happening and will continue to happen. I think, OK, well, yes, these are challenges, but they're really exciting opportunities. So it's so, you no, know, I think it's a really interesting time to be um, in this field in general, but also moving to a new part of the field and hopefully helping people think differently about you know given the situation we're in what do we do about it and and actually how do we channel it for the better have you seen i saw this advert strangely on instagram the other day for this concept called the line i don't know if you've if you've seen it about working with the environment when you create these spaces and building this kind of linear city as opposed to this yeah, so is that the one? It's somewhere in the Middle East. It's, Middle East, yes. Yes. I'm a bit sceptical about okay. this one. Okay, I don't know loads about it. I've also seen um, a few kind of articles. You know, it's this concept. I don't think it's a very sustainable concept. I think it, there's no kind of mass on it. Of you know, It's just a long linear space that actually there's no critical mass and density of people because people are just spread out across a long line as 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 much as I know you know I'm not an expert in in that um in the project my immediate take on it was you know this is this is not this is not going to sustain place it's Mm. a long drawn out you know length of city that I don't think will necessarily work and it's interesting how they've put 
they've kind of put environment first because the idea is that it's uh, we're building our cities around nature and around our environment so that it works better for nature but in actual fact if you I don't think at, I heard that dimension of it but. well I think it's interesting because yes that all sounds lovely and wonderful but the way people actually work in real life they will naturally expand and you know the whole idea of this circular donut kind of city the reason it that idea came about was because you know of ease of access and the way people move and and that whole place side of things a linear city in my opinion i'm not a designer so i'm completely not qualified at all to have any sort of no but that's what it's all about it's different views it's it's everybody's view you don't need to be a designer to have a view on on what can work but just looking at it i'm just thinking well look if you live at one end of this line and someone else lives at the other end or your workers at the other end it's going to take you forever to get there whereas if it was a kind of circular yeah density and proximity completely i mean and if you think about you know, I think there's so much we can learn from you know historic evolution of of cities and growth of cities. You know, the linear sort of model was something that often would happen along transport routes. You know, along train lines, or you've got you know a main you know major road arteries, and that's you know you get villages that sort of develop and houses crop up along along the length, but they usually don't go very far because then you need to start filling in the other bits to achieve that density. So. You know, and I think, and you know, this learning from what works in the past, I think, is so important as we rethink places of the future. Because actually, you know, some of our best examples of urbanism of places are historic cities, historic centres, and and partly, I think, they were probably designed better at the time. But I think also what we can't forget is they have evolved over time. So back to our conversation earlier about giving places room to sort of breathe, to grow, to adapt. You know, historic cities that we know now, they weren't created in a day. So I think there's a real danger and, and actually quite an arrogance in thinking that we can sort of plonk down a fully formed city at once and it's all going to work. You know, the, it will evolve over time and you need to give it that space to evolve and and hope and but but again create the conditions for it to evolve sustainably. So again, that, that the sort of the linear line. I don't want to critique too much because I, I do confess I don't know too much about it and and I may be proved wrong. But but for me, that concept of a very long line is ultimately just going to A, result in sprawl or B, kind of the ends will drop off and they'll just start accumulating more stuff around the middle. Because I think that's probably what people need, unless it's what, just what lots of... naturally do. Yeah, unless it's just lots of transport stops along the way and people just want to hop on and hop off. So mm-hmm. that's my hope, Mark. I'm going to go away and look <laughs> look up more detail and we can discuss more over yes. <laughs> coffee soon. But um, but it's a, it's a good, you know, if anything, it's a good thinking point. You know, some of these things are actually quite just good intellectual stimulus to, to think, does that work? How does it work? Does it not work? Why? You know, I think that's, you know, so for me, actually, it's been really interesting to get back into this kind of more urban scale world and be faced with some of these bigger different challenges to think about well rosie hasson thank you so much for your time today it's been lovely to catch up and i'm glad you're enjoying your your new role at street sense thank you yeah really lovely to chat and as ever so yeah look forward to chatting again soon thank you for listening to the design business podcast i'm alexander barnes ross and that was rosie haslam I just wanted to say a huge thank you to Backman for sponsoring this episode and do reach out on social media to let us know what you think.